Hi, everyone. I'm Brian Horn, editor of Lawn and Landscape Magazine. I'm here today with Andrew Bray. He is the Vice President of Government Relations with the National Association of Landscape Professionals. We're going to talk about just some legislative issues that are going on right now on Capitol Hill and in the federal government. Um, Andrew's well-versed. So, Andrew, uh, thanks for joining me today. Hey, glad to be here, Brian. And thanks for letting me come in and talking a little about government relations. Hey, no problem. Um, so we'll start out with the big one. It's It's been, you know, in this industry for a long time, it seems. H2B, um, what is the latest uh, with that? Yeah, so H2B continues to be an extremely popular program um, for seasonal uh, employers. The landscape industry continues to be the largest user of the program by a substantial margin. So when you look at the numbers, uh, of all H2B visas used in a given physical year, um, the landscape industry is usually right around 40%. The next closest industry is usually like hotel or lodging, and they only represent about 10 to 15. So we're the largest user, almost double the largest, the next one. Um, and the problem with the program is it continues to have this 66,000 cap, which was you know arbitrarily determined by Congress back in the late, I mean, early 90s. So it doesn't represent demand. And as we continue to, to you know, pull through this economic recovery, we still have record low unemployment and record low uh, job participation rate, meaning there's there's people that are unemployed and they're determining, they're deciding to remain unemployed. And so this last year has been actually pretty, pretty good for our industry. And I say that, you know, and couch it with, we could be better. And so of the 66,000, there are probably, let's say close to 160 to 190,000 applications for the 66,000 spot. So way over over prescribed, over prescribed, but luckily we were able to lobby Congress to put in some language um, in the appropriations that gave the Biden administration the ability to release additional visas, and the Biden administration has actually been very friendly to the H2B program, thinking that it could be helpful with some chain migration issues uh, through Mexico and down into the Northern Triangle countries, which would be considered El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras. And so I say all that because they released fifty-five thousand supplemental visas this year. Um, and that's nearly double the most we've ever gotten out of any administration that has released supplemental visas. The problem was they didn't come in time. And so we're working on trying to fix that. And I will share with the group, we are working on a uh, hopefully a permanent fix through a negotiated process on Capitol Hill between us and some other interested stakeholders like the labor unions, which are on the opposite side of the spectrum of our view of expanding the program. So I probably said too much there, Brian. So if I, <laughs> I rambled and you want to dig down on some of that, I'm happy to provide that more. I apologize. Well, no, you said it's still popular. Um, is it as popular as it used to be maybe five, 10 years ago? It seems maybe I'm not paying attention enough to it. I would hear about it pretty much monthly, um, either people complaining about it or people raving about it. Um, has it waned in popularity or is it still as popular? I think it has not waned in popularity at all. I think it is like part of the mix, a part of the piece of the puzzle to try to call to help our industry's labor problems. I think what you hear with some people though is the way that the visas are allocated through a arbitrary lottery system based on an arbitrary unrepresentative number, I think frustrates people. And it sure as heck frustrates me is someone who's trying to advocate to fix this. And so I think you hear from some people that maybe they're not using it because they got burned once or twice. And you know, when you're having to to, to bid on contracts, you know, in the late summer and fall of next year, not knowing if you're going to get, you know, your workers and then you you don't get them because you lose the lottery, that may may try to push you to figure out other ways to find labor. And I do think there's some other things that you can find labor through, but the H2B program is a valuable program to help supplement those seasonal needs. 
Well, what would you say to someone who got burned by it once and is like, I'm, I'm never doing that again. That almost, you know, that hurt my business a lot. What would you tell them? Well, I think that those folks that are looking for other avenues, I think are probably going to more traditional um, things through going to high schools, going to colleges. We have tremendous, we have a whole workforce development council and, and initiative through our organization, NALP, that we know that H2B isn't the only solution. And this is about getting out there and being creative. Uh, we know that there are better incentive programs that are being offered. Uh, there are employee referral programs. I know a lot of our uh, member companies are getting very progressive with some of the benefits they offer to try to attract new talent. And I think that's what it needs to be. I think to be successful in solving this labor crisis, it's it's like I said, there isn't just one automatic silver bullet. It's about using a multitude of, of things that you could use to help attract talent and attract workers and retain those workers too. I think that's another thing that is a problem for the industry and why the H2B program is so valuable because once you do get the worker here, you're going to have them here for nine to 10 months, no problem. And segueing perfectly, my next topic, um, sort of dealing with labor, is this gas to electric tax credit and technology in our industry um, is making it more, I think, making it more attractive to uh, people who may have never thought about landscaping. So can you give an overview of what this tax credit does? Yeah. And I think I first want to make sure you know everybody understands that the National Association of Landscape Professionals really is embracing and, and supporting a responsible transition from gas to electric equipment, right? And and we we know that that is coming. Uh, we are stewards of the environment. And we want to get there, you know, as 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 quickly as possible. But there continues to be impediments to making that transition happen overnight. And so we've we've really struggled with policymakers that want to snap their finger or flip a light switch and just think all of a sudden everyone can change over. Um, you know, it's it's terrible what's happening out in California right now with, um, you know, the drought and, the, and some of the hot weather and some of, some of those issues, but they're going to continue to have rolling blackouts. And they're the one state that has mandated that they're not going to allow the sale of, ga you know, gas equipment. And, and we, we, we pleaded with them to say, look, let's, let's give a little more time for these commercial businesses that rely on it, like the landscape industry. And so I was really pleased when the federal government decided to take a proactive approach. We believe that this transition for our industry should be supported with a carrot and not a stick. And those arbitrary timelines should be should not be something that we should be focused on, but we should be focused on incentivizing it. And this tax credit is a fantastic first step, but I want to warn people that it's just a first step. We need to do much, much more. Um, it is a 30% tax credit, um, but it's it's limited to who or, or what type of equipment it could uh, what type of equipment could be eligible for the 30% tax credit. And it's really the large scale, may, predominantly riding mowers. Um, they need to have batteries that hold basically a 7,000 kilowatt hour charge, um, which by my understanding of talking with some of the equipment manufacturers and, and some of the gear heads that understand this more is that that is limited in scope, but it does include the very large and most expensive pieces of equipment that can be upwards of 25 to 30,000. And so I think that's great, um, but we need to do more at the state and local level level to educate, um, ed educate policymakers that want to ban leaf blowers or ban other equipment and say, look, these, these, this equipment's important to our industry. It's in, important for your constituents and, uh, and our customers and your clients. And let's talk about tax credits at the state and local level or rebate programs. And so that's what we're doing right now. We actually partnered with the American Green Zone Alliance, um, which is an entity that's out there certifying companies and municipalities mm -hmm. on certified green zones, meaning they've transitioned to electric. And 
they are with us in the sense that it's not like flipping a light switch. It's it's not a it's it it's can't be done tomorrow, but we can start the transition now. And so that's where a lot of our focus is right now, Brian. Do you find that they are open when maybe on the federal level or on the state to local level, if a landscaper would reach out and say, you know, we appreciate what you're doing. We understand why you're doing it, but you're doing it too fast. Can you, you know, just listen to me for 10 minutes? Sure. Well, I will tell you that last year, I'm going to get some of these states wrong. There were bands of equipment, whether it just be leaf blowers or all equipment, and I'm talking gas powered in the following states. I'm not going to include California because that was the one we lost, but between, let's see, it was... Colorado, Washington, New York, New Jersey, Rhode Island, Maryland, and maybe Connecticut. Oh, Georgia had something going on as well. And that's not to mention the countless municipalities. It's it's very difficult for us to advocate in all the municipalities, but we want to at least advocate at the state level. We beat bands in all of those states, Brian. Um, and that was done by adv- you know activating our advocacy contact team in those districts and having those conversations with those policymakers. Um, I can tell you very recently, Maryland being one of those states, we held a workshop in Montgomery County, Maryland, um, about this transition in conjunction with AGSA. And uh, the state delegate who introduced the bill this year, um, she, her chief of staff was there and she came up to me afterwards. She goes, oh, my God. She goes, I didn't realize after seeing this presentation and talking with other landscape professionals that this transition is a little more difficult and costly than I thought. You know, I'm going to make sure to convey this to my boss. And that was nice to hear because I'm not saying it was already a guaranteed victory, but I'm hopeful that when they want to introduce something next year, that it's more focused on that carrot and not that stick mentality. It's amazing what happens when you get that, the other side of the story. Yes, it's funny Funny how we work like that instead of just talking our own echo chambers, right? <laughs> right, right. Um, yeah, I like that that carrot instead of a stick. Um, is that something you find that you in your position you need to do is is and not only how you approach things, but let them know that incentives are better than making people do it. That's right. I mean, I think you've got to let the market react. I mean, I always tell people, and this is care, this is a little different than care for stick, but if you want to ban something, why don't you start with municipal property, right? Or why don't you start, start with state property so you can understand the dynamics because you have tight budgets. You know, what we are seeing is I think certain HOAs and businesses are starting to put that in their bids, you know, to say we want all electric. And that's the natural progression of how this transition should happen. It shouldn't be through government intervention and mandates. And I think that's really what we're focused on, Brian. And then Montgomery County was that was the county that banned the chemicals, correct? <laughs> that is correct. Right. Montgomery County is. a, And I still believe Montgomery County may move forward with a ban on leaf blowers, gas powered leaf blowers. But we did our best to <laughs> to, to show them the difficulties. But. I also knew we were dealing with a rather um, progressive county, right. but to me, it was more important to bring in the state officials that could have impacted the entire state. Right. Well, you can't win them all, right? <laughs> you, you cannot. And if you go into this business thinking you are, then you're probably not going to last too long. <laughs> right. Lots of sleepless nights, if that's the case. <laughs> um, finally, I wanted to jump to um, the farm bill. Um, I tried to do some research on this. There's a lot in there. Um, so I'm going to let you explain how it applies to our industry. Sure. And, you know, I think, Brian, this will just be a good precursor for your listeners, because I think there's going to be a lot more to offer on this um, in the coming year of, of, of doing these, hopefully, podcasts with you, um, because there's a lot of things that are going to happen. But let me just give you the, the 10,000 foot level. The Farm Bill is a bill that it, it's considered an omnibus. 
that needs to be passed once every four or five years. And so the last one passed in 2018, and so it will expire in 2023. And this is a massive spending bill for almost everything you would think in the agricultural space. It also includes the SNAP program for child nutrition, which is actually one of the largest and controversial aspects of the Farm Bill. Um, but without the Farm Bill, if all of a sudden we get to the end of 2023 when it's supposed to expire and we don't have one, we have issues with our farmers, with how we subsidize farmers, commodity prices rise significantly. So it's always this good doomsday scenario to make the government or Congress act, because if there is no doomsday scenario, Congress does not really act. Um, so I wanted to just make sure everyone understands this is this big bill that's going to move. And it's the most germane place to do anything related to pesticides. Um, pesticides are generally not the type of legislation that's going to move in a closely divided Senate just because of the controversial nature of pesticides, unfortunately. And, you know, we don't support whether you use pesticides or not. We support your ability to make a choice for what's important for your company and your client and your customers. And we think that as long as we have a robust uh, federal regulatory scheme prescribed in the Federal Insecticide Fungicide or Genocide Act, um, that those those products have been adequately reviewed and, and, are, and, are, and are great for um, maintaining healthy green spaces. And so we look at the farm as an opportunity to, to fix some things in FIFRA. And one of our biggest bugaboos, Brian, as you mentioned in Montgomery County, the pesticide issue is pesticide preemption. And the notion here is we dislike when a locality can regulate pesticides because generally a locality is going to regulate based on emotion and fear rather than the science. Um, and we think that only states should make that decision. And right now, 44 states only allow states to make to, to make those decisions, but there are six states that allow localities to make it. And so Maine, in, in Portland, Maine, you can't use synthetic pesticides. And in Montgomery County, one of the biggest you know, suburbs in the nation, right outside of D.C., you can't use pesticides. And so we want to fix that, and we can do that in the Farm Bill. We've also had um, some states try to roll back preemption. Last year, Colorado got really close to rolling back preemption, and we saw places, we knew that quickly places outside of Denver and in Boulder were going to likely ban pesticides. And we just don't think that that is a prudent and appropriate approach, nor do we think is it based in any sort of sound science. And so we're going to be doing a lot over the next, let's see how bad my math is right now, about 15 months before the deadline of the next farm bill um, to try to fix this, this preemption thing. And in addition to the preemption stuff, there's also opportunities to do some funding for turf grass research and other things that show the benefits of our industry on, on assisting in, in, in aiding the negative impacts of climate change. Well, you kept saying preemption. Maybe can you explain to our audience who might not be familiar with what is that? Sure. So think of preemption as um, the higher... So Preemption would be where I'm going to try to start with. I know this very well, by the way. Preemption is when basically a higher ranking aspect of the government overrides a lower sub a lower political subdivision's ability to make that decision. Okay. And so what we're talking about here is we want to impact state preemption, not federal. We're not trying to say EPA controls everything. We're saying EPA and the states work together to regulate the sale and use of pesticides, which is what it has done in 44 of the states. We don't think a local. We think a locality should be preempted from regulating pesticides because that locality does not have the scientific expertise, or knowledge, or even really, to be honest with you, the enforcement ability to actually conduct that. And so we want to preempt localities, political subdivisions. So think think municipalities, towns, counties, from regulating pesticides because the state would preempt them from having that authority. 
Okay. Is that better, Brian? I might have struggled with explaining. Yes, it, I, I think for a minute it was one of those things where you knew what it meant, but it's hard to explain. But no, you did it. You did it well. Um, <laughs> so why? And you don't have to go too much in this, but that always amuses me on when the federal government should get involved versus state versus local. So why is a state? Why is this a better um, issue for a state over a, a city? Sure. And here's why. And it's, it's a great question, though, Brian. So right now it is designed so that states have the ability. So when EPA approves a pesticide, they create a label and then the federal label is the law. And then they go to each state and the state gets to look at the label because each state may have some different um, geographic, you know, um, you know, issues that may change the way they might want to view that label. Generally, the states don't change the label very much at all. It's very rare. The only two states that sometimes deal with that are New York and California. But the important thing is when they go to the state, the state is dealing with a robust state regulatory agency. It's generally the State Department of Agricultural, but it's not always in some other states. It's the Department of Environmental Protection. And the, the point is, there those are significant departments that understand what these what this pesticide does, you know, why it's important, why it's necessary for that for that specific state. So that is good because it takes a holistic approach. When you go to say a, a, a town or a city, they don't have the same interest to, to look after the entire state, nor do they have the um, the financial resources to be able to conduct that research. We generally find they just have people that don't like pesticides making that decision, and we don't ever think that that's a smart way to like policy. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. They don't. The, I never thought about the resource sort of aspect of it, where they're not getting all the information. Where on a state level, they We'll get, are going to get more information. So that, that's exactly. Good. And like um, I said, when you look at the science and look at the information, it's rather compelling about, you know, <laughs> what the right side of that argument generally is. Right. You had mentioned something uh, that I almost glossed over. How does climate change factor into the farm bill? So climate change is kind of a newer thing for the farm bill, but uh, it, it, they, it, there is discussion that, so there's 12 titles in the farm bill and everything falls under a different sort of title um, based on what it is. Okay. And they're talking about having a specific climate change title. So where a bunch of new provisions would go in. Um, but the, the idea is that both the U.S. Department of Agricultural um, and, you know, the current Congress is, is comprised, but remember, the Congress might look different next year when the Farm Bill passes, has a real uh, mandate to look at climate change. And we think that's a fantastic thing to, to look at because we think there's opportunities for research and other initiatives to be taken forward that show the value and benefits of healthy green spaces. So when you're thinking about how the farm bill plays, it's generally be a mechanism to conduct that funding or authorize, you know, the appropriate agencies, whether it be the U.S. Forest Service or aspects of the USDA, to be looking at the value of turf grass and shrubs and trees and, and how that impacts, especially in the urban and suburban spaces where a lot of our members are, are maintaining green spaces. Now, climate and change are two words you might not want to mention at Thanksgiving dinner. So can you sort of, from your standpoint or your point of view as someone who's impartial or, or looks at it down the middle, why should our industry be concerned about this aspect of the bill? Yeah, I mean, I think we should be concerned with it because, and I'm not going to get in that Thanksgiving food fight <laughs> and, and tell you one way or the other, but I think there's compelling evidence out there for it to be something that I think a lot of the people that are having the customers to our industry are concerned about. I'm not saying they all are, but I think we need to understand that. And as we see changes to the climate or we see, um, you know, things that could be negatively impacting temperature or, 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 you know, whatever it may be associated with climate change, 
we need to understand is our job is to maintain. We are stewards of the environment. Mm -hmm. So whether it is really climate change or just a blip in the map, um, we need to be prepared to demonstrate how what we are doing is helping, not harming whatever those perceived issues are. And, uh, and you know, I, I think these concepts of climate change, these concepts of sustainability are things that we as an industry don't need to look at as four letter words. We need to embrace them. OK, because that tends to be the, the predominant narrative out there right now. And I think to, to not acknowledge that and to not try to take advantage and tell our story um, would be a disservice to the entire green industry. Right. That goes back to what you're saying about making decisions on emotions. If, you know, either you're a diehard believer in climate change or you think it's garbage, like maybe open your mind a little bit, just listen to the research and then you can make a decision. Yeah, it's it's unfortunate because it feels like everybody has their own research. We run into that all the mm -hmm. time. But I think not to make anybody angry on one side of the, the opinion or the other that's listening to this podcast is we would be fools not to acknowledge that that conversation is being had. And if we want the conversation dictated on us, we sit here and say nothing. But if we be proactive, if we are proactive, we get to tell the narrative of the great things our industry does for maintaining healthy green spaces. Great. Well, and Ellen, I want to let our audience know that, you know, we, Andrew and I, we plan to try to do this maybe monthly if that doesn't work out every other month or even quarterly, because I think it's very important to keep this industry updated on what's going on on Capitol yep. Hill and more importantly, how, how this industry can get involved to make an impact. Yep. No, I'm really looking forward to having more of these conversations with you, Brian. I think um, as we go through this farm bill cycle, I'll be able to get a little more granular with some of our strategy. Um, and I'm hoping to be able to provide some really good H2B updates probably um, by October, November. All right. Well, perfect. Hopefully we, hopefully we could do this next month. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you so much, Brian. Thank you.